you doing uh i'm okay i think that's yeah, all I'm of here. us right now yep in the last two days i've spent a collective 20 hours on zoom so i'm mm-hmm. a little like and here we go again <laughs> and here we go again but this is you know this is fun zoom. this is yeah this is fun zoom this is uh this is this is pleasure zoom <laughs> oh that might have to be our title <laughs> for this episode <laughs> Ooh, take okay, me well. to the pleasure zoom. <laughs> take me to the pleasure zoom. All right. Well, off to a great start here. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, as always. I am Scotty Milder, horror author, filmmaker here in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And I am a, sorry, my house is settling and now it, now it like it's yeah, been quiet all day that. and now it's making all these noises. So I'm like, I might, uh, I might have to actually like post a picture of like your side eye when that happened because I could hear it. <laughs> so, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was like, what the fuck? Uh, okay. Hi, everybody. I am Amelia Umpuero. I am a theater maker, actor, uh, and I realized that I have not said this in a little bit, the artistic director of Duke City Repertory Theater yes. here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And this is the Weirdest Thing podcast. Yeah, this is our podcast about uh, all sorts of weird shit. Yeah. And so I don't know anything about your story. You know a little bit about my story. Um, uh-huh. But I, think I like to is- spring them on you. Yeah, I actually enjoy it when you do that. Yay, okay. <laughs> but at least on my end, this is like another kind of like happier, not fucked up week. So yes, for me as well. We had all sorts of like plane hijackings and cannibalism last week. So this is going to be a little bit of a, hopefully a little bit of an antidote. Mine's just like a bunch of science, which I'm actually going to try and like pare down into something. Okay. Okay. At least I understand. <laughs> okay. I probably won't. I'll have to like go onto Reddit and be like, explain it like I'm five. Yeah. <laughs> Scotty's episode of the podcast. Yeah. So, well, I guess I'll just uh, dive right in. Okay. So I am doing this week the story of the Voyager Golden Record. Mm. So uh, just to give you my sources, of course, Wikipedia, as Mm -hmm. always, NASA.gov, like just a bunch of stuff all over the NASA website. Like I didn't even like highlight any particular article, just like all of NASA, basically. Yay, NASA. And then an article from Wired Magazine in 2017 called 20 Years After His Death, Carl Sagan is Still right (laughs) (laughs) and then also from the like nasa jet propulsion laboratory website a couple little articles there's making of the golden record and what are the contents of the golden record okay and then uh, i didn't pull much from this but i wanted to mention it because it was a cool little video it's from the united nations it's Mm -hmm. hosted by bill nye the science guy and it's the voyager golden record a reminder that we are all connected oh yeah okay (laughs) already already putting you in your feels there (laughs) yeah okay i'm ready okay so just a little bit of a background before i get to the golden record itself i want to talk about like kind of what came before the golden record so actually before the voyager mission and so we are talking about nasa here in the voyager space probes 
Uh, but before Voyager, there were the Pioneer probes. The Pioneer program, specifically Pioneer 10 and Pioneer 11. Okay. So they were NASA space probes that were launched in 1972 and 1973. Originally conceived in 1964, they were basically meant as preparation for what would become the Voyager missions. Okay. The whole idea was, at this point, you know, trying to send out these explorers, these vehicles, basically, to map the furthest reaches of the solar system. I think they were doing like 150 to 100 to 200 different scientific tests mm. on these voyages. Now, Pioneer 10 was launched in July 1972. It became the first man-made object to traverse the asteroid belt. So the asteroid belt is between Mars and Jupiter. Wow. It was basically doesn't like the reason that they launched these when they did, there was this kind of, I don't think it was like the great conjunction, but basically the planets were in such an alignment that they were like, if we send out these probes on this date, we can get really cool pictures of Jupiter, Saturn, etc. Cool. So Pioneer 10, it reached Jupiter on November 6, 1973 and mm. started taking photos. And then it ended up crossing the orbit of Neptune 10 years later, 1983. So that gives you a sense of like the distances we're talking about. 10 yeah. years to get to, like once you get into the outer solar system, things are so far away. So it took 10 years to get to Neptune. Its mission ended in 1997. Radio communications were finally lost on January 23rd, 2003 when it was 80 astronomical units from Earth, which is about 7.6 billion miles. It's now estimated to be about 11.4 billion miles, which would put it beyond what's called the Kuiper Belt, okay. which is uh, the Kuiper Belt's where like Pluto and the, the planetesimals are. It's this kind of disk of material that's left over from the uh, beginning of the universe so there or the beginning of the solar system i should say is are is are okay <laughs> <laughs> go ahead <laughs> pluto planet or nah like where are we on that i'm with nah nah yeah no real? i was i was real sad to lose pluto but then when you like read up on it i mean it doesn't make sense for pluto to be a planet it's a dwarf planet because they found a bunch of other objects like it out there. So there's mm -hmm. nothing particularly unique about Pluto in the Kuiper Belt. It's basically, I mean, some astronomer is going to like yell at me for saying this, but I'm just going to say it. It's basically like a really big asteroid. Because that's what the Kuiper Belt does. You have the asteroid belt, which is the inner ring between Mars and Jupiter. Mm -hmm. You get out to the Kuiper Belt. There's also asteroids out there. And then you have these dwarf planets in the Kuiper Belt. They're all past Neptune and Uranus. And then once you get past <laughs> the Kuiper Belt. <laughs> sorry, I had to. I, I had know, to. One, I'm, I'm so sorry. And I will be saying that word a couple more times. Okay, that's the only time <laughs> so, I'm going to do it. That's okay. the only time I'm going to do it. I promise. Oh, you can do it as much as you want. But once you get past the Kuiper Belt, then you get into what's called the Oort Cloud. And the Oort Cloud is where a lot of like the long period comets come from. It's basically this big sphere of just leftover shit from the uh, formation of the solar system. But my understanding is that the Oort cloud is actually considered not even to be part of the solar system. It's it's basically once you get to the Oort cloud, it's considered interstellar space. Okay. Yeah. And that's where, by the way, back to the whole Pluto thing, this is a total sidebar. There is a theory that seems fairly likely that there is a planet nine out there somewhere they think it might be either a super earth super earth or maybe uh <laughs> that really amused you <laughs> <Sorry>. earth earth <laughs> 
who's a, a super, super earth, earth or or maybe even like neptune sized i think and they've basically been able to calculate because they can see the gravitational effects that this what thing is having so there's maybe a mystery planet out there and all of us hp lovecraft fans uh-huh. are lobbying for it to be called yugoth because okay. that, <laughs> that, that's basically like um hp lovecraft's like planet x out in the edge of the solar system so i took astronomy when i was in college when i was doing undergrad mm-hmm. and i say that like i did like i like i did anything but undergrad i just have a bachelor's degree guys um but I took astronomy because I thought it would be like learning cool facts about Mm -hmm. the planets. And instead it was stuff about like, you know, this is how you figure out the, you know, the, the, it was, it was, it it was math and there was, Mm. you know, some science in there. And I was so sad. I just wanted to learn about planets. You should have taken the astronomy class I took in college because our professor literally said, hey, I know this is like an intro to astronomy class. I'm not going to throw a lot of math at you. Let's just talk about cool shit in the universe. No, I was like, yeah. and a lot of stuff about like, you know, light and speed yeah. and we, was, we didn't do sad. we didn't do any of that it, that was actually one of my favorite classes i ever had um, and it's kind of what got me like to fall in love with things like the voyager space probes and things like mm-hmm. that okay um so anyway so back to pioneer 10 so yeah so we lost communication with it january 23rd 2003 they think it's about 11.4 billion miles away from earth at this point so i believe that's beyond what they consider the kuiper belt it's not quite to the Oort cloud pioneer 11 launched on april 6 1973 it was actually the first man-made object to encounter Saturn. They launched it to specifically take some pictures of Saturn. What? It is also the second man-made object to reach what's called escape velocity, which Mm -hmm. means it's hit a speed that allows it to escape the gravitational pull of the sun. So it will also go into interstellar space. Oh, wow. It crossed Neptune's orbit in 1990, and then contact was lost with it actually in 1995. Mm -hmm. It was just about 4 billion miles from Earth, and it's now estimated to be about 9.3 billion miles from Earth. Wow. As of 2019. Okay. So what's important about these in relation to the golden record is that this was the first attempt to send a message to possible extraterrestrial beings that might stumble on these probes. So both Pioneer 10 and 11 had what was called the Pioneer plaque, which is basically, it's a pair of gold anodized aluminum plaques that are like bolted to the probes. Mm -hmm. The original idea was proposed by a consultant and journalist by the name of Eric Burgess Mm -hmm. when he visited the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. And if anyone knows anything, JPL is like a big contractor that does a bunch of work with NASA. So they do a lot of the design stuff for NASA. Okay. And this Eric Burgess, he approached Carl Sagan with the idea of putting this plaque onto the probes when they met at a conference in Crimea, which is in the Ukraine. So let me tell you a little bit about Carl Sagan. Okay. And by the way, I'm just giving you the broadest strokes on Carl Sagan. Like if you go to his Wikipedia page, it goes on forever. And if you read mm-hmm. it, I mean, he's like literally one of the coolest human beings who's ever lived. And problematic um, in any way? Not that I found, I mean, he's been married a bunch of times. I did not find it. I didn't stumble on it anything problematic but he was married three times so you know that maybe tells us something but yeah so carl sagan was born november 9th 1934 in brooklyn new york uh his father was an immigrant garment worker from the ukraine and then his mother was just like a native new yorker they were reformed jews not particularly religious and here's what carl sagan had to say about his parents he said he got his analytical nature from his mother and then his sense of wonder from his father (sighs) he says my parents were not scientists 
they knew almost nothing about science. But in introducing me simultaneously to skepticism and to wonder, they taught me the two uneasily cohabitating modes of thought that are central to the scientific method. So he mm-hmm. also said that his kind of defining moment that sent him on the path to becoming a scientist mm-hmm. was when he was four years old. His parents took him to the 1939 New York World's Fair, Ooh. and he was just blown away by all the exhibits. There were a couple in particular. One was, I'm not sure exactly what the exhibit was, but it entailed someone shining a flashlight onto a photoelectric cell mm-hmm. and then the cell would make this like crackling noise um, okay and then he also said he saw how the sound from a tuning fork was turned into like a visible wave on an oscilloscope oh okay and so this is what he says this is plainly the world held wonders of a kind i had never guessed how could a tone become a picture and a light become a noise uh. so yeah just like full of curiosity this kid <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> he was also taken, this is going to be important. He was taken when he was a kid to watch the burial of a time capsule in Flushing Meadows, which okay. is, I believe, in Brooklyn. I didn't write it down. It held mementos from the 1930s, and it's not, I think it's still there, and it's not meant to be open again for like a thousand years. And just the whole idea of a time capsule, of like communicating a thousand? A thousand like years? That. Yeah, I think so. <sighs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just like was unprepared for that that <laughs> yeah. high um, number. I think just to him, the idea of communicating across eons with like a future yeah. culture just captured his imagination. Hmm. And so this is going to come into play when we talk about the plaques and the golden record. Okay. So he was an inquisitive kid. He spent a lot of time in the library reading about science and nature. Uh, here's another quote from him. He says, I went to the library and asked for a book about stars. And the answer was stunning. It was that the sun was a star, but really close. The stars were suns, but so far away, there were just little points of light. The scale of the universe suddenly opened up to me. It was a kind of religious experience. There was a magnificence to it, a grandeur, a scale which has never left me. It's never left me, he mm. said. So his parents were very supportive. They nurtured his interests. He was also just like clearly kind of a, a prodigy, like yeah. super smart kids. So they were, you know, they bought him chemistry sets and all sorts of books. And he was kind of poking around with a bunch of different scientific disciplines, but really his just, his love was space. Yeah. So he also became a science fiction fan, of course, as a teenager. He was reading the sci-fi pulps, like uh, Astounding Science Fiction, which was probably the biggest of the, like the sci-fi pulps of the time. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of right when the whole flying saucer craze was taking off. Because this is like right around the time of Roswell. Yeah. And it's interesting when you read Carl Sagan on aliens. You know, this is where it comes down to that skepticism versus wonder. Mm -hmm. Where he he very much is like, when you read quotes from him where he talks about the possibility of life on another planet, he wants there to be. But he's also pretty skeptical that UFOs... And it's like little green men in a flying saucer. He's like, the evidence kind of isn't there. Um, So here's a quote from, this is from that Wired article, but this Adam Rogers was interviewing Carl Sagan and he says, eventually Sagan would come to think of UFOism as more of a religion than anything else. It was the Cold War, Sagan said, and people were in their heart of hearts worried that the human species would not pull through. What more comforting belief that aliens would come down and intervene? But just because an idea is comforting doesn't mean anyone should believe it. Merely because on an issue of this importance, we must demand very high standards of evidence. And the proffered evidence is fantastically thin why would we commit belief when the evidence is so meager and then uh, adam rogers continues he says commit belief that struck me as profound then and it still does the idea that belief is an action you have to commit 
an action so powerful that it requires an infrastructure of truth before you turn the key. Ugh. Yeah. That's um, great. Yeah, I love that. And that one of Carl Sagan's most famous quotes is, I'm sure you've heard this before, it's extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So his mm-hmm. position on like aliens is like he wants there to be aliens. He believes there probably are when you consider all the billions and trillions of planets in the universe yeah but we don't have the evidence he's just like we can't say anything because we don't have the evidence Mm. and when it comes to the idea of like ufos coming to visit i think i talked about this a bit in the mothman story Mm -hmm. when you're talking about the distances that have to be traveled right it's hard to believe you know we are so even our closest star we are so far away that how are aliens just like you know ufos just like popping in and out you know, all the right. time, like, abducting hillbillies and <laughs> right. probing things. <laughs> well, and it's just the thing that like, we always assume that, you know, things are going to, you know, we think of like little, like the aliens look humanoid. They come in right. a flying, like we assume that if there is life in far away galaxies and stuff, that it's operating under the same like constructs mm-hmm. and science and mm-hmm. all of that as we are, uh, which is always just a, a funny thing to me, right? Yeah. And that it would be, you know, that it would be that, that it would be like, like little flying kind saucer. Of, yeah, exactly. And, and in a way to me, and this is like, don't want to go off on this tangent, but it is one of the things I love about H.P. Lovecraft mm, is mm-hmm. because his concept of what is an alien is so alien. <laughs> Cthulhu being probably the most humanoid of any of his creations. Mm-hmm. And I always love that because when I think about, yeah, how, how is life going to evolve on a different planet? Things like gravity, distance from the sun, levels of atmospheric radiation etc etc are gonna affect evolution in these just bizarre ways we can't even imagine and to me like the flying saucer with the little green man is just kind of a failure of imagination yeah yeah um, yeah. Another little sidebar. There's a show on Netflix that I've been watching a little bit of. I think it's called Alien Worlds. And it's okay. basically trying to take concepts of how things have evolved on Earth and then extrapolate them to how things might have evolved on other planets. Mm. And it's fascinating. And it's totally cool. wildly speculative, but there's some science behind it. So it's cool. If you guys are interested in this, you should check that out. Okay. So Carl Sagan graduated high school when he was 16 because uh, he was super, super smarty pants. Mm-hmm. And he actually went to study at the University of Chicago because it was one of the only colleges that would admit him as a 16-year-old. Oh, okay. Yeah. So at University of Chicago, he studied all of the sciences. He studied everything from chemistry to like human genetics. He joined what was called the Ryerson Astronomical Society. He ultimately graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Physics in 1955 and then went on, I believe also at University of Chicago, he got a PhD in astronomy and astrophysics. He wrote a dissertation called Physical Studies of the Planets. After that, he was granted a top secret clearance uh, for both the Air Force and NASA. Like they were going after him because he was Mm. super smarty pants. Mm -hmm. He began working as a fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, publishing all sorts of scientific articles. He was consulting with NASA on the Mariner Space Program, which was kind of Mm pre-pioneer. And then he went, took a job lecturing at Harvard while he was working at NASA. He tried to get tenure at Harvard, but Harvard was like, nah. And it sounds like a load of bullshit to me. Okay. This is all just from, you know, reading. I read this in a couple different articles, but basically Harvard was real snotty about the fact that he was already kind of becoming this celebrity. I think he was publishing some books. He was becoming this like public science advocate. 
Okay. And Harvard, like, it sounds like they were just, like, real jealous of him. And they didn't give him tenure because they basically saw him as, like, a self-promoter. And I think their, like, stated reason is, like, well, he's not specializing enough in any one field. But it just sounds like a load of bullshit. Mm -hmm. So he left Harvard and he went to Cornell. And Cornell was just like, yeah, like, come and then be on all of the TV shows. Like, they had... (laughs) The opposite <laughs> attitude to this. Yeah. So he ended up going to Cornell and he actually stayed at Cornell until he died in 1996. Okay. So he pretty much spent his entire career at Cornell. While teaching at Cornell, of course, he was working as a consultant with NASA. And this is how he became involved with both the Pioneer and Voyager missions. Mm-hmm. He's probably most famous for some of his books. He wrote a book called The Demon Haunted World with his third wife, a woman named Anne Druyan. She's also involved with The Golden Record, which I'll get to hopefully soon. Um, and basically uh the demon haunted world is like his sort of talking about that like idea of keeping both your sense of wonder but also your skeptical mind Mm -hmm, at work that's mm -hmm. what like i've read the demon haunted world i read it i think in high school it's really good but it really it's about like trying to get us past like superstition and pseudoscience and really like continue to use your imagination but back it up with evidence right he's also uh famous for a book called the pale blue dot I'll talk about that here in a second. And he's actually probably most famous for, again, with his wife, Andrewian, the PBS documentary series Cosmos. With, right. Okay. Yeah. It's from 1980. And for those of you Neil deGrasse Tyson fans who've seen the new Cosmos and maybe didn't realize there was an original Cosmos and the host was Carl Sagan. And I watched it when I was a kid and I was obsessed with it not as i've got to be honest not as big a fan of the the new one but i think it's just like the difference between watching something as an adult and watching something as a kid you know yeah no shade to neil degrasse tyson at least not on that i mean he's got his own problematic issues (laughs) but um right back to that as always okay so the pale blue dot Mm -hmm. This book, The Pale Blue Dot, it's basically about the significance of the famous pale blue dot photo. Have you seen this photo? I don't think so. I'll include it with our social media images. It was a photo taken by Voyager 1 of Earth from about 3.7 billion miles away. So in the photo, you see these like, it's black space with these bands of what look like, I think it's essentially sunlight. It's like sunbeams. Okay. Um, And you see this little dot in the middle of one of the beams. And that little tiny dot, which is smaller than the size of a pixel, is the Earth. Yeah, that's it. It's one of the most (sighs) famous (laughs) photos taken from Voyager. And so this is what Carl Sagan had to say. This is another one of his most famous quotes. This is what he has to say about that pale blue dot photo. He says, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam. <laughs> I was watching your face as I was reading that. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. So this is one of the things I loved about Carl Sagan is he was a brilliant scientist, but also just this great communicator. Mm-hmm. And he really was so great at making science accessible to people who are maybe not scientifically minded, like 
me mm-hmm. as we talked about mm-hmm. on the brains episode <laughs> like i've always yeah. stayed away from science because of the math part but i love carl sagan because he he really led with this sense of wonder yeah and so that's important when we get to the the pioneer plaques and the voyager probe so let's go back to the pioneer plaques okay like i said there were these pair of gold anodized aluminum plaques put aboard both pioneer 10 and 11 this journalist eric burgess sort of suggested it sounded like kind of a casual conversation suggested it to carl sagan and carl sagan just ran with it he went to nasa and he pitched it to nasa and they said Mm -hmm. okay we've got like three weeks to put these plaques together he had to design them everything and he, he designed them with his wife at the time not Andrean, this was his second wife, uh, an artist named Linda Salzman. Mm. And it's basically a pictorial message for any alien that happens to stumble <laughs> on, <laughs> on these, at this point, would-be dead space probes. Right. Um, so it's a pictorial message. It includes a schematic representation of the hyperfine transition of hydrogen, which is the most abundant element in the universe. I think he did this. He included this basically as like science and math are going to be the universal constants. Okay. So any alien species that's capable of reading this plaque are going to understand the basic building blocks of the universe. So if you show, I don't know what this means, hyperfine transition, but basically Mm -hmm. hydrogen being this abundant element, every alien is going to know what hydrogen is. It also includes a figure of a nude man and woman with brackets to indicate their relative height to each other. (laughs) It's expressed with like a binary code representation of the number eight so that the aliens can have some sense of like the ratio. Okay. Uh, Because they're not going to recognize, you know, eight. Eight, but they'll understand yeah. binary code because, again, it's like this universal okay. constant. The man's hand is raised in a gesture of goodwill. And the idea is that <sighs> e- even though the gesture might be in, because he's not waving, he's like holding the, you can see this, everyone else can. Right. But I'll, I'll include, I'll include a picture of the plaque. He's just kind of holding his hand up. And the idea was even if the aliens don't understand what the gesture means, they'll be able to see the anatomy of the hand, including the opposable thumb. Uh, yeah. Now, this has led to some criticism because the idea that having the male figure being the one who's waving is seen as showing some sexual bias because the woman's just kind of standing next to him with her arms at her sides. Right. What's, you know, fair. The original idea was actually for the man and the woman to be holding hands. Mm -hmm. But then Sagan realized that an alien who has no idea what our anatomy is could see this as actually one organism instead of two separate organisms. Mm -hmm. Now, (laughs) they're naked, which caused all sorts of (laughs) problems. Uh So the dude's junk is just like hanging out. It's very clear. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I really thought you were going to go somewhere else with that comment. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now I'm curious. Uh, I thought you were going to be like, the dude's junk is just enormous. Like, that's where I thought you were going with it. But then you were like, just hanging out. And I was like, that makes way more sense. It's actually not the most impressive junk in the world. but They never are. (laughs) (laughs) Just gonna leave that right there. But so you see, so you see the dude's penis, uh-huh. but the woman's vagina is—it's like a Barbie doll vagina. Like oh, so she's just like smooth. She's smooth. Sagan said there were two reasons for this. One is that they kind of didn't have a lot of time to complete the plaque. Okay. That I mean, we're talking about like the exterior view of a vagina. Like it's not that complicated. I don't think like in like a wide shot, you know? Yeah. But really he said the reason they didn't include it, I guess he told this to an engineer, a guy named Robert Kramer. He said he suspected NASA would not approve a more detailed drawing of the vagina. 
I find that, I mean, we're talking the early 70s. I find that fascinating because it's like, they're fine with like dude's dick hanging out, but um, yeah, but but you know how that's always been. It's always been like the naked male is like in his natural element, like as God intended, but you know, naked vulvas are like, you know, devil's playground type of thing. I don't know why our, I don't know why vulvas and stuff are, are, have, are always seen as obscene. Um, yeah, well, and that's exactly yeah. he said. He basically he was like, NASA won't let me put this plaque on because they'll see it as obscenity. They'll see it mm-hmm. as pornography. And he wasn't wrong because people yeah. were real mad about these naked images. People right. writing letters to the editor, things like that. Um, now I, <laughs> it's I, going in to space. I know it's, it's your kid is never going to see it. He's not going to whack off to it. It's not going to turn anybody gay. I mean, like it's going into space. It's not like they're doing it. I mean, they're standing there naked. (laughs) (laughs) It's 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 amazing to me that like just the politics behind this. Wow. Yeah. Now. I don't believe this was Sagan's call. I think he was kind of, he was like, he decided to like pick his battles. Mm -hmm. He also said he regretted that the final figures appear super blonde and Caucasian. Mm-hmm. He in his original design, he wanted them to look kind of pan-racial. And actually the man had like an afro. But oh, whoever yeah. once it got through the NASA approvals process, they were like, no, give him like a blonde curly hair. He also said the reason they look blonde is because they're like outline figures, so the hair isn't shaded in. Ah. Uh, but they look, I mean, they look like Ken and Barbie. You know? Okay. Yeah. Um he he was bummed about that. He wanted them to show the breadth of the human being. I guess. Mm-hmm. But this will come up when we get to the golden record. Okay. Because uh, he's able to kind of correct some of that. Okay. Also on the plaques, there's a radial pattern. So there's like a dot with all these lines coming out. Mm-hmm. And basically the dot is supposed to represent the sun. Each of the lines connects to a known what's called a pulsar, which is basically like a compact star that emits a beam of the electromagnetic radiation. Okay. So basically like any telescope can see or detect pulsars because they're putting out all this radiation. So his idea was that the aliens would like know where these pulsars are, even if they couldn't recognize the sun, because we're just like, like a nothing star in the Milky Way. But these pulsars kind of are just like big beacons. They're like, you know, traffic lights of the universe. So by connecting all these lines to the central point, he's basically telling the aliens, this is where we are. This is fascinating to me because there is a school of thought that it's like, we do not want to be doing this. Because any aliens who are able to figure out where we are and have the technology to come here, it's going to be Cortez with the Aztecs. Like, they are not going to be coming in peace. I think this is something Stephen Hawking talked about. He's mm-hmm. like, we should not be trying to communicate with aliens. But again, like, that's based on exactly exactly well this gets into this gets into also the idea of the fermi paradox this is a bit of a sidebar but there's this idea of like at this point we should have seen evidence you know if there's so many billions of stars so many billions of worlds just in this galaxy alone basically where is everybody Like there should be some evidence that we should have seen of some intelligent civilization. That's the Fermi paradox. And I can't remember what it's called, but there's an actual theory, which is basically like every species, once it develops a certain level of technological sophistication, will eventually destroy itself. It's almost like this like built-in regulator in the universe. No species can ever get to the point of interstellar space because we'll ultimately destroy ourselves with our own greed yeah uh, exploitation of our resources etc again going to what you said this is putting a lot of human assumptions on these aliens so Mm -hmm. who knows 
Yeah. Carl Sagan clearly did not have this like nihilistic negative view. He was hoping that there would be friendly aliens out there that could understand yeah. what they were saying. I think he was also knowing that like, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of years before anything is going to find, if ever, find yeah. these probes. It also included a diagram of the solar system, and then it included a small picture of the spacecraft, basically like silhouetted behind the man and woman figures, kind of showing, okay, here's this object that you aliens have. This Mm -hmm. is how big we are in proportion to this object. Okay. So it was a lot of like, it's amazing to me that this was put together in essentially three weeks. Yeah. Because it's a lot of like real like deep thought about how would you communicate with a species that has no ability to understand our language? Yeah. Understand our gestures. You've got to have these very clear. Yeah. You know, you've got to find this almost universal language. Yeah. So those are the pioneer plaques. Now let's go to Voyager, the golden record. Okay. So Voyager came after Pioneer. It was actually originally conceived as part of the Mariner program, which was before Pioneer, but then it kind of got moved into its own thing. So it became Voyager 1 and 2. They were launched in 1977, and it was, again, there was this favorable alignment. So they were like, we can launch these two probes, we can get some really badass pictures of Jupiter and some badass pictures of Saturn. After the launch, they decided to redirect Voyager 2 to also go see Uranus and Neptune as well. So they're kind of going different directions. Okay. Voyager 2 was actually the first one launched. It was launched on August 20th, 1977. Like I said, it was the trajectory was supposed to go past Jupiter, Saturn, and then go all the way out to Uranus and Neptune. Voyager 1 launched a little bit later, September 5th, 1977, and it had a shorter and faster trajectory because it was supposed to do this flyby of Saturn's moon Titan, which would put it outside of what's called the Uh, the plane of the elliptic so if you think of every diagram you've ever seen in the solar system everything's on this like elliptical plane like the planets are not just kind of scattered all over right so voyager one goes shoots off of the elliptic to take these pictures of titan the saturn's moon and then it just kind of goes out okay into the universe it was much faster than voyager 2 so voyager 1 actually it ended up overtaking the the already launched a few years earlier pioneer probes it overtook them in the 1990s which makes now voyager 1 is the most distant human-made object from the earth and i'll talk about where it is okay couple okay it's also if you take pioneer 10 and voyager 1 they're the most widely separated human-made objects because they're going opposite directions Mm -hmm. out of the solar system voyager 1 crossed what was called termination shock in december of 2004 i tried to figure out what the hell termination shock is it's got something to do with solar wind and i was just like yeah but it's basically once you start getting past termination shock you're you're starting to get to the edges of the solar system uh 2010 it sent back data saying the basic the velocity of the solar wind had dropped to zero so this means it's it was about to enter interstellar space across what was called the heliopause in 2012 the heliopause is essentially the boundary where the sun's solar wind is stopped by what's called the interstellar medium which is like matter and energy that are outside of the solar system so once you go past the heliopause you are now in interstellar space the next thing you're going to cross after that i think is the Oort cloud which i mentioned so as of 2010 voyager 1 is now in interstellar space voyager 2 crossed the heliopause in november of 2018 so it's the second object to enter interstellar space. And at this point, they're starting to shut down. 
Oh. Um, and we're talking 40. I mean, they. what's amazing to me is they were launched the year I was born. I'm 43 years old. And they're still, like, I think Voyager 1 may finally have, like, shut down completely. But mm-hmm. I think Voyager 2 is supposed to still be sending data in, for at least until 2025. Wow. And then at that point, they're starting to deactivate their systems. They don't have any power to continue with scientific instruments. And that will mm-hmm. be the end of the mission. And they're just going to go and go and go. I hate that, but yes. (laughs) But this is where the golden record comes in. Okay. So now let's talk about the golden record. Okay. So both Voyager 1 and 2 carry what are essentially two phonograph records. They're constructed of gold-plated copper mounted in aluminum containers. They're inscribed with the words to the makers of music, all worlds, all times. Mm. So here's what's on the records. So the contents, well, before I get there, the contents of the record were selected by a NASA committee that was chaired by Carl Sagan at Cornell. It took almost a year to find all of the selections. So they include a written greeting from President Jimmy Carter. Oh, okay. <laughs> says, this is a present from a small, distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts, and our feelings. We are attempting to survive our time so we may live into yours. Mm. It also includes 115 images, including many photographs in black and white and in color. And I'm not sure, I guess it's like grooves in the phonograph record, but I'm sure, I I think the idea is like with the right kind of data reading, like you can pull these images. Okay. So the first chunk of images are like scientific. They show mathematical, physical qualities, diagrams of the solar system and the planets, a DNA helix, and also representations of human anatomy and reproduction. It's also got pictures of a variety of animals, insects, plants, and landscapes. And then images of humanity across a broad range of cultures just kind of live in their lives. So Mm -hmm. just pictures of people. And so this is where Sagan was, like he wanted to correct that thing of like, you know, just Ken and Barbie on the Mm -hmm. pioneer plaques. Now he's got pictures of everybody not yeah. literally everybody but right like, <laughs> am i on there no <laughs> yeah <not. laughs> that would be pretty amazing uh because i think you were born a year later but yeah um, a lot of the images are also annotated with again indications to show scales of time size mass chemical composition basically trying to use this scientific universal language to explain us to the aliens yeah and then getting into the sound so it's got a variety of natural sounds like sound of the surf, wind, thunder, bird calls, wow. whale song, etc. Oh. It also includes a spoken greeting by then UN Secretary General Kurt Waldheim, okay. who I'm assuming was German. Okay. Uh, but he actually recorded the message in English. So I'm going to play that for you now. Okay. As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. We step out of our solar system into the universe seeking only peace and friendship to teach if we are called upon, to be taught if we are fortunate. We know full well that our planet and all its inhabitants are but a small part of this immense universe that surrounds us, and it is with humility and hope that we take this step. On top of that greeting from Kurt Waldheim, it also includes Mm -hmm. spoken greetings in 55 ancient and modern languages from all over the world. I've listened to the track. It's like five minutes long. You can find it. It's on Spotify. Yeah, it's on Spotify. Um, I'm I'm just going to play a little 30-second clip. Shalom. Hola y saludos a todos. Selamat malam hadirin sekalian. 
selamat berpisah dan sampai bertemu lagi di lain waktu. Kaipacamatna pitapas maitapas rimapayastin runasimip. Oji jiano. Ashuli. Namaskar. Bishe shantihok. Salvete qui cumqua estis. Bonam erga vos voluntatim abemus et pacem per astra ferimus. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It also include I did I couldn't find this. The Latin phrase per aspera ad astra, which means through hardships to the stars. It includes a recording of that in Morse code. Which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's got an hour-long recording of Andrewian's brainwaves, which is okay. fascinating to me. <laughs> okay. Um, and then this is what it's most famous for, is musical selections from all over the world. And it's got a little bit of everything. And again, you can find all of these songs if you just Google it. You can find literally everything that's on the golden record. I'm just going to play, I think, five or six little clips. So the first, this is a concerto from Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm. Uh, it was performed by the Munich Bach Orchestra with Karl Richter as the conductor. It also includes an initiation song from the Bambuti tribe of Zaire, which I'm going to say this word, but I don't know this might be an offensive word. They're called a, quote, pygmy tribe. Okay. It's not clear to me whether that's derogatory or not. So if it is, I apologize. I'm going to play a little bit of that. This is probably my favorite on here. Okay. Any Back to the Future fans are going to love this. Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. <laughs> Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans, way back up in the woods among the evergreens, there stood a log cabin made of earth and wood, where lived a country boy named Johnny Be Good, who never ever learned to read or write so well, but he could play a guitar just like a ring in a bell. Go, go. This next track, it's a traditional Japanese flute piece. It's called Suro no Sugomori. Okay. And it was performed by Goro Yamaguchi. Next up is a Navajo night chant. It was performed mm. by Ambrose Roan Horse, Chester Roan, and Tom Roan. Melancholy Blues by Louis Armstrong. Mm. 
Like I said, there's a bunch more. That's that's just what I pulled for this. But like, mm-hmm. there's stuff from Azerbaijan. There's stuff I think from like Papua New Guinea. Just all over the place. Interestingly, they really wanted to include the song "Here Comes the Sun" by the Beatles. Uh-huh. And the Beatles, the band itself, were like, "Yeah, do it." Like they were super into it. And their record label EMI was like, "Nah," like they refused to give the right. Seriously? Yeah, fucking dicks. Fucking <laughs> like, worried about these. It's going into space. <laughs> exactly. Like you like, think the fucking aliens are going to be ripping it and like selling yeah, it, and... putting it on Napster or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so dumb. I like and I, if like I was, an intergalactic lime wire. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> it, like if I was Paul McCartney today, like I would just be laying in bed at night thinking back and being like, oh, those motherfuckers. Because like they super wanted to do it, but the record label said no. <sighs> so that is the golden record. Um, mm-hmm. I'll post uh, links to like the playlist and everything so you can now I do got to say about these clips that I played some of mm-hmm. them I'm not entirely sure the the exact clips that are on the golden record it wasn't clear to me if it's the exact same performance or not so like okay. obviously the Chuck Berry song and the Louis Armstrong song we know those are what was on the golden record but like the Navajo night chant things like that mm-hmm. like this is a representation of what's on the golden record I'm not sure it's exactly what's on the golden record okay okay so what's going to happen to these probes let's talk about where they're going okay so Voyager 1, it's moving at about 16.9 kilometers a second. They think it will reach the Oort cloud in about 300 years. Mm. And to give you a sense of how big the Oort cloud is, it will take 30,000 years to pass through. (gasps) In about 40,000 years, it'll pass within 1.6 light years of the star Gliese 445. Mm -hmm. And then in about 300,000 years, it will pass within the light year of another star, TYC 313552. (laughs) So again, just giving you a sense of the distances we're talking about. Voyager 2 is not headed in the direction of any particular star, but in about 42,000 years, it will be about 1.7 light years away from Ross 248. Mm -hmm. And then in 296,000 years, it will be about 4.3 light years away from Sirius. So that's where they're going. This is what Carl Sagan had to say about this. He said, billions of years from now, our sun, then a distended red giant star, will have reduced Earth to a charred cinder. But the Mm. Voyager record will still be largely intact in some other remote region of the Milky Way galaxy, preserving a murmur of an ancient civilization that once flourished, perhaps before moving on to greater deeds and other worlds on the distant planet Earth. And that is the story of the Voyager Golden Record. Ugh. That one got me in the feels. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that last quote is like, it really kind of puts it all in perspective. Because it's, you know, it's like, yeah. oh, this time capsule that was buried in New York that's going to be opened in a thousand years. Like, that's impressive enough. But I mean, we're talking about billions of years from now. These things will yeah. still be floating out there. Unless someone finds them. And someone could find them. Yeah. So. Oh, wow. Just, just I like, like to think about them just up there, you know. Yeah. 
it's like, it's like just doing oddly comforting. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And just what, like, I don't know, again, like, like the imagination, right. And the, the sort of like, can you say, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I think you can, you can use this word for it. Like the generosity of it to be like, you yeah. know, essentially it's, it's even if none of this exists, you know, by the time it reaches anything or anybody to just be like, this is, this is what we did. You yeah. Know? Yeah. There's no practical reason to do this. Mm-mm. And that's, no, that's very lovely. Well, and it's one thing I love about this story is, you know, I think I grew up, you know, again, I talked about this on the Brains episode with this hard division in my mind between art and science. Because mm-hmm. I grew up as like the freaky art kid or mm-hmm. writer kid in a science town. And yeah. I, it was just like one of these things is not like the other kind of feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and even the friends I had who were into sci-fi, like they were, like I remember having this argument with a kid I knew who was like a sci-fi fan. And he was like, well, I mean, does the science work in this? Like I was trying to recommend a book to him and he was like, trying wow. to pick apart all the science and i'm like i don't know it's a cool story dude like i don't know what to tell you yeah <laughs> it's and cool. it's okay like if it doesn't it's a story like, yeah you can just enjoy it for that <laughs> right but like Buddy. I, yeah exactly but that was just not the way his brain was geared you know wow what i love about the golden record is it sort of shows that scientists can be artists mm-hmm. because this is this is like carl sagan's legacy and it's yeah. gonna last longer than shakespeare it's yeah. gonna last in the planet it's still gonna be out there yeah yeah so uh, how go. cool <sighs> okay <laughs> okay so i'm not going to tell you right away because my story starts with a cold open okay um so <laughs> i'm excited like a law and order episode i love it <laughs> But I will say that my sources for this are, of course, Wikipedia, an article from Rolling Stone magazine, Justin Wang's YouTube channel, Tales from the Internet, Mm. uh, an article uh, from avclub.com, and just endless Reddit rabbit holes. (laughs) Okay, so let's begin. Okay, so one day sometime in the early 1980s, radio station in Germany plays a song. There's not anything particularly special about the song. It's kind of your run-of-the-mill 80s pop new wave tune Mm -hmm. the song is probably in english the singer sounds not american or british but maybe european maybe vaguely eastern european although could be australian or even japanese for the most part it's like a really normal song it's not the best it's definitely not the worst it's you know, pretty middle of the road example of new wave pop. There's nothing truly, truly extraordinary about the song with the exception of one thing. No one, and I mean no one, has been able to identify the song, the band who sings it, when it was released, or where it even came from. This is the story of the most mysterious song on the internet. Oh, I'm in. I've never heard of this. (laughs) This is amazing. Seriously? Okay, cool. Okay. Never heard of this. Okay, so fast forward. On March 18th, 2007, someone by the name of Anton Rydell uploads a snippet of the unknown song to a to what I believe is a German Google group. Okay. Like when you click the link, that's what it takes you to. And they, um, Anton uploads, like I said, the snippet of the song along with a post that says, hello, I know you are good and therefore my last hope for now. There is an approximate one minute snippet of an old radio recording 
that I've been racking my brain for over 20 years now. I've tried text analytics, but this wretched goth is mumbling. And then it's like the typed out emoticon. So it's like the colon dash and then like a forward slash like meh. Um, <laughs> BT dubs, that's also the translation that Google Translate gave me. So the, right. and the, the original post is in German. So that's a rough translation, but essentially yeah. it. The post also includes what Anton thinks the lyrics are. And these posts are the direct source of the mystery and the earliest known upload of the song. Okay. Anton eventually goes on to upload the snippet to various other song identification websites at the request of another users. These sites are like crowdsourced Shazam sites. Mm, okay. The song piques the interest of some internet sleuths, but it kind of just languishes and obscure online groups for a while until 2019 when a Brazilian teen named Gabriel da Silva Vieira gets wind of the story. Gabriel learns about the song from Nicolas Zuniga and he's a guy from Dead Wax Records and that's a Spanish label. Okay. Gabriel becomes kind of fascinated with the song and the story. So he uploads the snippet to his own YouTube channel under the title, The Most Mysterious Song on the Internet. Okay. (laughs) He also heads over to Reddit and he creates 44 posts about the song. This sounds Mm. a little weird, but you know, weird is why we're here. Um, And he's posting about the song on subreddits like 80s, Ask UK, Depeche Mode, Help Me Mm -hmm. Find, Name That Song, What Is This, uh, Tip of My Tongue. So he's basically just trying to get the song in front of anybody who might be able to recognize it. Yeah. Just like everything he can think of. Yeah. He's throwing everything he can think of at it to see if if anybody can, because like I've said at, at this point in 2019, everybody is like, I have no idea what this is. Wow. So this is where the song really starts to go viral. Mm -hmm. And then in June of 2019, Gabriel creates a subreddit solely dedicated to the mysterious song. He also makes a post called unknown song in parentheses, like the wind investigation, like the wind. It ends like the song ends up having a couple of titles because of what people think the starting lyrics are. Yeah. So he's like unknown song, like the wind investigation. Mm -hmm. And then he gives a rundown of everything he knows about the song. So let's make this bitch famous. Okay. In July of 2019, YouTuber Justin Wang gets hold of the story and he uploads a video titled The Most Mysterious Song on the Internet to his Tales from the Internet series. That video currently has nearly a million views. And oh, that's, wow. yeah, it's been up just under two years, you right. know, like just over, just over a year and a half. Okay. So this is where the mystery like really starts to pick up steam because people are seeing like Justin Wang is like, his YouTube channel is called Wang with an exclamation <laughs> point. Um, and he's got a lot of followers and a lot of subscribers. So people mm-hmm. start really learning about this. Between Wang's YouTube video and the subreddit dedicated to the song, internet sleuths start becoming like fascinated with, yeah. with the story of this mysterious song. Reddit user Johnny Me Too finds out about the search and manages to upload a full version of the song onto the mysterious song subreddit. So he uploads the song and everybody is like, what do you know? And he's like, literally nothing. I got it from Usenet. So uh, quick question. Mm-hmm. So are all the versions of the song that they're uploading, is it because someone recorded the radio broadcast? So they're all versions of this radio broadcast? I'm going to get to that in a bit. Oh, okay. 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 <laughs> 
But I will say that all of this stuff, all of these snippets and everything are coming from the original source of Anton Rydell's post. And then Johnny Me Too comes in and manages a full version. Like everything else has just been like 18 seconds, 30 seconds, that kind of stuff. So this is why people are like, wait, he knows something because he's something that no one else has. Okay. Yes. So yeah, again, everybody's like, what do you know? And he's like, literally nothing. I got it from Usenet. He had downloaded the full version when at some point Anton had uploaded a full version of it to Usenet back in 2007. And then Johnny okay. Me Too like downloaded it and then like chucked it into the depths of his hard drive. Yeah. So just to let you know, this is like on the post where he was like, here's the full version. This is sort of an average comment. It says, quote, let's not let the fact that the song was found to discourage us or demotivate us from finding the original artist. After all, they deserve all the credit they can for this great piece of music. If we're lucky, they might just remaster the song, but with updated sound and clearer lyrics. But maybe that's just wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. Like none of that is to is to make fun of anybody or anything. It's just like this is how involved and invested people are starting to get with this this mystery. So, okay, hold up. If there's a full version of the song that's getting uploaded to the internet, how does nobody know where it came from? Especially right. Anton Rydell, who uploaded the dang thing in the first place. Right. So, okay. Rewind back to Germany. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometime between 1982 and 1984, we think. Uh-huh. A 14-year-old named Darius S., who has requested to remain anonymous through this whole ordeal, is in Wilhelmshaven, Germany, listening to the radio, probably listening to Music for Young People, hosted by Paul Baskerville on German public radio station NDR. Just sidebar, NDR is short for Norddeutscher Rundfunk. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. Which is so just it's sort fun of like to say. their version of like Top of the Pops or something, probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's listening to he's listening to Paul Vaskerville's music for young people on NDR, doing like what all fourteen year olds did right. at the time, which is making some sweet, sweet mixtapes. Yeah, I used to do he's, that with ninety four rock here now. <laughs> hell yes. Um, you've not lived until somebody has come up to you with a mixtape that they made, and it's I will say that a mix CD is slightly different because yeah. when you got a mixtape, hopefully if the person was worth their salt, they had like written out all of the song titles and the bands and everything mm-hmm. on there and like maybe added some of their own like artwork yep. um, and like a little note and stuff. Um, yep. yep. So getting a mixtape was like a big fucking deal. You were, you were the one who posted the meme about, you know, your Gen X, if someone who was ever in love with you gave you a mixtape, like a hand. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. So many mixtapes. Did that for some girlfriends and also like me and all my metal dork friends, we used to just make mixtapes for each other. Yes. you know yeah yeah you just share music or like you know you'd have your friends i had a lot of tapes that it was like oh like a group of friends like these are our songs exactly and, you know yeah, it was like like car mix with my friends etc yeah. there's something just beautiful about the like just the handmade quality of the yeah. homemade mixtape we can hear the like ka-chunk ka-chunk of like the recording yes yeah. yes yeah, yes oh, so good all, all the youngins listening are like Ugh, listen to these old what the fuck? 
<laughs> they're just like, what is it? What does this mean? So he's he's recording songs off of the radio that he right. likes. And then later he's taking those tapes and transferring the songs minus any DJ talk that is going on that could, you know, identify the song title <laughs> or the name of the band to another, yeah, yeah, to another clean tape. So he's just got like hours and hours of like righteous 80s tunes. Yeah. German. The most mis- New synth pop. Yeah. The most mysterious song ends up on a cassette tape labeled cassette number four in between songs like Corey Hart's I Wear My Sunglasses at Night. Mm. I'm going to let you pause so you can play a little bit of that song right there. I love that song. Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters. Oh, yes. Something strange in your neighborhood. Who you gonna call? And Depeche Mode's Master and Servant. Well, that's a great song. Again, sidebar, FYI, this is how everybody thinks it went down. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even Darius himself is like, I think this is what was going on. I think this is what I was listening to when I pulled this song off of there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it's 40 years ago. Right. And like, I don't remember what I was. I don't remember a song I listened to like last week, let alone right. 40 years ago. Yeah. So there's that. At some point, Darius writes out the songs contained on cassette number four, with the most mysterious song being simply listed as Blind the Wind. So that's what he thought the first words were mm-hmm. by question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so yeah. At some other point, Darius puts together a playlist of all of the songs he'd recorded off of the radio, but can't identify and names the playlist Unknown Pleasures after a Joy Division album. Yeah. In 2004, Darius digitizes the list, turning them either into AIFF or MP4 files. Also in 2004, Darius's sister, Lydia, gives Darius a website domain for his birthday. And Darius uses this website to raise awareness for his unknown pleasures playlist. This other songs on the list, you know, start to get identified and and people are like, oh yeah, that was this. And oh, this was this band and and all of this stuff. So he probably doesn't even know he's got the like the mystery song that everyone's trying to figure out. Like, because this is before all that, right? Right. So this is, yeah, this is 2004. So Lydia, being a good sister, decides to 
help her brother out in his quest for info about the most mysterious song by posting about it on various sites under the username Anton Rydell. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She also occasionally goes by the username Blue, B-L-U-U-U-E <laughs> on Reddit. Okay. So that is how we have a full version of the song, but no information about it. Mm-hmm. By the way, we're going to take a little, uh, we're going to take a little detour to talk about what was going on in Germany in the 1980s. Cause yeah. that's a little bit important to, okay. uh, to, to sort of get us in the, in the headspace. I want to paint a full picture. So in the early 1980s, Germany was still divided into East and West Germany by the Berlin wall. Right. I am not going to get into the Berlin wall and I mean, into everything that has to do with the Berlin wall. Yeah. Cause it's a vast subject. <laughs> I texted Scotty <laughs> yesterday. Yesterday? Was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday. That I texted you and I was all, what? Can you tell me about the Berlin Wall? And Scotty was like, uh, it's a big wall? Yeah. Um, he did go on to say more, just to clear yeah. that up. I mean, but- the only thing I really remember about it is it like it did div- not just East and West Germany, but it like went right through Berlin. So it was like dividing yeah. Berlin into essentially two cities. Yeah, 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 very much so. So yeah, I'm not going to get into everything having to do with the Berlin Wall, but just like know that it's up at this time and life on the two sides of the wall are very, very right. different than one another. I'm going to just give you a, a speed round crash course on the Berlin Wall itself. The Berlin Wall was a guarded concrete wall that physically and ideologically divided Berlin from 1961 to 1989. Mm-hmm. It was built by the German Democratic Republic. They were communists and cut West Berlin off from East Berlin and the rest of surrounding Germany. So like you had said, it was sort of like it created this little like pocket kind of, of, you know, the, like the capitalism of West Berlin, you know, sort of surrounded by East Berlin and like everything else. Yeah. The Eastern Bloc was basically like, yo, we need this wall to protect. We need this wall and, and this accompanying death strip to protect our folks from the fascist a-holes who want to prevent the quote unquote will of the people from building a socialist state in East Germany. The Berlin Wall, as well as the history of the Eastern Bloc, communism, socialism, and the Cold War are things that you should go and look into, especially, especially if you like to throw around words like fascism, communism, mm-hmm. socialist, socialism, socialized in regards to American politics. Yeah. Um, yeah. So go and do that. And actually just like go out and learn a little bit about world history, like as a whole, you know, like get away from just like American history and see like you know what was happening in asia and the middle east and yeah shit like that can i interject real quick yeah just if people are interested in this so to understand how different east germany from western like east germany was essentially a soviet puppet state mm-hmm. so we're talking about the soviet union essentially yeah and yeah. a couple movies to check out if you're interested in any of this that are fun slash less fun depending on the movie there's vim vendors wings of desire shows mm-hmm. the berlin wall it was shot at that time period and then more recently there was a movie called the lives of others which is mm-hmm. about like the police state in east germany mm-hmm. that's from i think like the mid 2000s and then just a few years ago is the movie atomic blonde with uh charlize theron which is like a yes. fun comic booky sort of yes look at that tension between East and West Berlin. So anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's also really interesting to see pictures of the Berlin Wall from like either West Berlin or East mm-hmm. Berlin. Like the West Berlin side of the entire wall had been covered with like graffiti and street art. Yeah. It was, you know, it was this whole thing. Everything on the East Berlin side... <sighs> 
I mean, looks like some type of internment camp. Yeah. Which is the sense you know? kind of. Yeah. 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 I And, you know, I said the I said the thing earlier about the death strip. That was a literal chunk. The, uh, it was like the ground that bordered the wall. Like they made it this like undrivable thing. It had barbed wire. It was mm-hmm. like brick. And they, there were like, you know, watchtowers and armed guards. And, and yeah. it's a trip to look at it and to be like, this was life on one side. And, you know, 18 inches away, this was life on the other. Do you remember the Berlin Wall coming down? I remember that uh-huh. pretty, mm-hmm. I didn't really understand it at the time. Like I didn't, I didn't understand the significance, but I remember that very clearly on the news. Yeah. I remember it. I, I don't remember exactly what grade I was in fourth or fifth, yeah, something maybe. Like that. And I remember getting the news in my classroom. Like I was at Catholic school and the news came in and I think like, you know, I think we were able to like pull in a TV. Cause I remember seeing footage of like them, like tearing down the actual wall. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I remember, I remember watching it at home with my parents and watching all the people like climbing the wall and dancing on the top Yeah. and just my yeah. dad sitting there on the couch going, wow, wow. <laughs> Cause he, he got it. I didn't get it. I was just like, oh, yeah, dancing on a wall. Like I didn't. It's a wall. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely go and look into that. But anyways, that's what we're dealing with. Right. I bring that up again, just to paint a full picture. And also some of that stuff is going to come up a little bit later. Okay. Okay. So again, (laughs) flash forward to 2019 on July 3rd of 2019, Gabrielle shoots Paul Baskerville, the host of music for young people, a message on Facebook asking if Baskerville remembers or knows anything about the song. Baskerville responds that he doesn't know the song, but maybe this woman Babs who archived Paul's show can help. Ah, Okay. Okay. From here on out, I could just read you a timeline of like every little fucking thing. These internet sleuths (laughs) have found, dissected, uploaded, posted, messaged, poured over, et cetera. But it is a lot. Um, If you go onto Reddit and you search the most mysterious song, the subreddit will come up. And a lot of people have done a lot of work to catalog things. Mm -hmm. Several people have done a, at a glance timeline, and then a very in-depth timeline. And that in-depth timeline is like in 1972, you know, Joe Schmo forms a band with his, you know, buddy Rob Blob, and they become, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's in depth. Very, very (laughs) clear German names there. (laughs) Rob Blob. That's going to be my pseudonym when I'm checking into hotels. uh, If I ever ever start a punk band, it's going to be Rob Blob and the something or others. (laughs) Oh oh my God. And the Eastern block. There you go. Rob Blob and the Eastern block. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Like I said, lots of people have done a lot of work message over it, but again, it's a lot. And I I would be sitting here for three days, reading the whole thing to you. Right. People have gone so far as to debate the tape deck that Darius used to make the original mixtapes because it's like, Oh, well he was using this kind, which didn't come out until 1984. So it had to have been pulled from a radio station in 1984. Interesting. Yeah. Just like Um, deep in the weeds. Deep, deep, deep in there. The kind of synth that they used in the song. Like there's, I think in one of the Tales from the Internet videos, there's a whole thing. Because uh, he ended up doing, uh, Justin Wang ended up doing a series of videos about the most mysterious song. Okay. I think it's like up to five videos. 
videos where they're talking about the synth and how you can hear it in the song that there's a couple of notes that are held out in tandem and the way that they like reverberate. That wasn't something that could be done unless it was this synthesizer, which didn't come out until like 1980, whatever. I mean, it is that kind of, like you said, like deep dive into the weeds. German radio stations have like all been contacted. Mm -hmm. Uh, The audio has been picked apart. Again, it's people that are doing things like, well, the sound waves on this one are at like, it's nuts. Yeah. The nationality of the singer has been debated. That's where it comes up that it's like, it's clear that he's not American or British. Mm -hmm. Uh, Doesn't sound like he's anywhere from the, you know, from the British Isles. Sounds like vaguely Eastern European, but some people are like, no, we think that's Australian. There are people that are like, no, we think it could be Japanese, Greek. Interesting. Whatever. Rolling Stone Magazine, AV Club, and even the New York Times have written about the mysterious song. Like it, yeah, it started to really, really pick up steam. (laughs) And someone even got their hands on a list of every song Paul Baskerville played on his show in 1984. The song was not on that list. Wow. So it might not have even been that show where the kid took the thing like yeah the only thing that all of this work has been able to prove is what the song is not and because there will always be people who want to tear down instead of build up the investigation has been plagued by fucking trolls who want to come in there and want to be like i'm the person who wrote and sang the most mysterious song or there was a guy who like took the full version and uploaded it to spotify and he was like this is my song i did it fuck you yeah yeah Yeah. and and you know or say that they've solved the mystery they're like they have to like the poor mods of that subreddit <laughs> I, I, it's like a full-time job for them to just say. like sort through everything because yeah. there's a lot of like the most mysterious song on the internet solved exclamation point exclamation point and exclamation it's like- point not at all. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Sidebar, trolls suck. Okay, but there has to be some theories, right, about right. this song. It came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So what are they? Baskerville, the DJ, believes that the song might have been a demo recording that was played once by some NDR presenter and then thrown away. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon for, another theory is that it's not uncommon for DJs to buy records when they're traveling abroad Mm -hmm. and that somebody might've wandered into a little local record shop and picked it up and played a song and then was like, oh, well. Yeah, okay, we like do that again. Kind of a bootleg or something. Yeah. yeah, this is also during the Cold War, so there are theories that maybe some hopeful musicians in East Berlin were able to sneak their demo over the wall to a West German radio station. Th- that's what I was wondering mm-hmm. myself before knowing anything about it. I was just like, "There's, you know, is this coming from the east, from the Eastern Bloc somewhere?" Yeah, yeah. there was some a hole who got in there and he was like, "Oh yeah, I know what the song, the deal with the story is. Like it was this East German band and sad." they were all shot to death trying to climb over the wall and you know and probably poor shit yeah yeah, it was it was 100 he he was like lols and then you know yeah went to go make himself some ramen or something um (laughs) comb his neck beard yeah maybe the song was released like on an indie 80s label yeah you know like small like boutique label right um this is a big concern for fans of the most mysterious song not just fans of the mystery but fans of the actual song who are really Mm -hmm. like this is like 
a fantastic song because they're really worried that if or when the singer or band is found, the song and the album will become like a really highly overpriced collector's item. Mm -hmm. So they're like, please don't let that be what it is. Maybe the band who wrote the song doesn't want to be found. Yeah. Maybe they're happily living in obscurity on purpose and they're watching this investigation with dread, knowing that someday these clever Redditors are going to discover who they are and push them into an unwelcome limelight. Mm -hmm. Maybe like, what if they were a one hit wonder? And what if they only had this one song in them and they'd be outed to just meet like the ridicule and disappointment of everybody who spent countless hours trying to find them? Right. Countless hours, BT dubs is not hyperbole. Amateur (laughs) song detective. Okay. I don't know if it's MKLL. It might be MK11. It's a little hard to tell. Let's say it's MKLL. Says he spends three to four hours a day on the most mysterious song. Gabrielle says he spent many sleepless nights trying to untangle this mystery. (laughs) B. George of the Archive of Contemporary Music in New York City says, quote, I'm amazed at the energy devoted to this online. The posts read like the live commentary and betting strings that accompany bootleg sports sites. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. So like, why all the hubbub? about mm-hmm. the song, you know, uh, yeah, Paul Baskerville. Like you said, it's like not even like the best song. Yeah. Paul Baskerville is like, I mean, if it was like a work of art, <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's like just let it, it, yeah, just let it like, you know, hang out in obscurity and like, don't worry about it. But like I said, some folks like really, really, really love it. Second reason is many say that it's about giving credit where credit is due. And I think this goes with the idea of the song being sent in by an aspiring group. And wouldn't they be so chuffed to find out that their song has taken the internet by storm, Right. Well, like go back to your thing about maybe the band is worried about ridicule. Mm -hmm. But I would think if this mystery gets solved, none of these people, they're not doing all this because they want to like point their fingers and laugh at somebody. I mean, it's kind of crazy like to put this much time into it, but there's love. Yeah. You know, it's like people will be so happy for these musicians if they're. Yeah. Yeah. Treated as heroes. I think. Yeah. There's a big thing about a Greek band. And I feel like the lead singer of this Greek band has been kind of like. I mean, I don't want to say an asshole, but like (laughs) he's been like not super cool about the whole thing. The Mm -hmm. thing is, is that when you hear the most mysterious song and then you hear other songs by this Greek band, the singer sounds sounds very, very similar. But again, he's like, I don't know, maybe like maybe I did. I don't fucking know, you know, (laughs) which again, tossed off 35 years ago or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and and that's that's the like everybody's like, how can you not remember? But something that Justin Wang says on his thing is that he's like, look, you're talking about something that took place in the early 1980s. Right. And he's like, I'm a lot younger than all of the people involved. And I couldn't tell you with any certainty about any piece of music that I heard 20 years ago. Right. Let alone 40 well, and I just think about like even if you're the the creator, like as someone who's been writing short stories since I was in my preteen years, mm-hmm. if I stumbled on something I wrote when I was twelve, like I can't remember everything I wrote when I was twelve. I may or may not recognize it. You know? Right, and if it had no context, if there was no right. if there was no title, if there was no buy, yeah, if I just found know. it in a drawer, it was like, what the fuck is this? You know? Yeah, or not even if you found it in a drawer, but if somebody printed it in the New York Times, who's to say that you'd be able to read it and go, did I write? Th- 
Yeah. I did. I like, I definitively remember writing this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So whoever knows, probably the biggest driving force in this is that nowadays, not to be like all, you know, in our day, but nowadays it is completely foreign to want knowledge of something and to not be able to find it in the time that you yeah. can say, Siri, what's the name of this song or pull up Shazam on your phone. Right. I had to hide my phone so that the little, <laughs> the little goblin in there wouldn't be like, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. We've gotten like, we've gotten real used to having all of the knowledge in the world for better or for worse, literally in our pocket. Yeah. And so like not being able to solve this puzzle in four seconds is basically giving these folks like a collective case of musical blue balls. Right. Um, well, it's, it's like, think about how it feels like when you're trying to say a word and it's right on the tip of your tongue and you can't <sighs> get it. And like how insane that drives you. And like, mm -hmm. it's not even important to remember the word, but you can't relax until you remember the word. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, and it, this is a version of that. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And now it's like, I think the Reddit group has 20 some odd thousand members. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the YouTube videos have been viewed quite a bit and, and all that stuff. So there's like, you know, but at the same time, this is even, e okay, even if you take everybody who's listened or who's watched the videos on YouTube and you take that as like a single viewer who's looked at that video once mm -hmm. and you take all of the people in the subreddit, you have a million people. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because most it's people actually aren't... not that many people. Right. Like most people aren't in the middle of Reddit message boards and stuff. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it was being passed around in these obscure, you know, like I said, sort of crowdsourced Shazam sites and stuff. Mm -hmm. It was like in the deep corners of the internet. Yeah. You are somebody who spends, you know, a fair amount of time on the internet learning about weird stuff and, and you don't know it. about this story. I am going to put the entire clip. I'm going to play it. And then maybe our one German fan, because I think we have one German fan, is going to write to us and be like, hey, I wrote that song. It made <laughs> Maybe we solved the mystery. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my Lord. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of what's going on. Yeah. The article in Rolling Stone ends with this quote in data heavy 2019, perhaps the biggest contribution the makers of like the wind or whatever it's called <laughs> Blind could <the> make <laughs> could make would be ensuring that something in the world remains a mystery. And that is the weird and winding tale of the most mysterious song on the internet. That's crazy. I mean, that, yeah. Cause like you said, just the idea of like there being a piece of anything information out there that like you can't trace back to its source. Yeah. Like, you cannot find everything's at like our fingertips now. Yeah. Know? And Here. so I, I kind of hope it never gets solved. To yeah. Be honest. Right. Cause when you solve it, it's just going to bring it down to earth. Yeah. There's just yeah. going to be some people who were like, we did this we did a song. Summer. Yeah, It was like for high school talent show or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm going to play you a little bit of it right now.
think that's English. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it does have kind of an Eastern European something to yeah. it. Yeah, I kind of dig it. I got to be honest. That's what I mean, though. It's not like it's not like that's shit. Yeah, no, I and mean, it's it, also it's, not like hold the fucking phone. Like this song sends me. It's like this is kind of catchy. Yeah, no, I mean it definitely has like a Depeche Mode of that era mm-hmm. kind of vibe, like sort of new wave, like a little goth because he's got a little bit of a baritone, you know, yeah. but like pretty bouncy, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really funny to like see the different interpretations of the lyrics. So if you if you're like, OK, so the first line is like the wind, you'll hear like the wind. If you think to yourself, the first line is blind the wind, you'll hear bl-. like it's that's what it, I heard. Yeah. And it's like, you know, again, it's all this like, whatever. Yeah. It's a weird, it's like, it is on par with the Max Headroom broadcast break-in. Yeah. Of like unsolved internet phenomenon. Oh, wow. That's one we should talk about at some point. But I'm not going to lie. That story creeps me the fuck out. That's a creepy one. We're talking about doing an odds and ends. And I think that's a perfect odds and ends one. So yeah. one of it we'll talk off off mic. We'll decide yeah. who gets to tell that story. It's like this, but a, just a little bit creepier. Yeah. And it's so funny because it's technically there's no real reason for it to be creepy. Like if you break it down into its component parts, it's like, okay, well, it's this thing and blah, blah, blah. And again, we're not going to get super into it because we're going to tell you guys the story at some point. But uh, something about it gives it's, me the heebies. It's, it reminds me of, uh, well, I'll I'll talk more about this whenever we do it. But it reminds me of the David Cronenberg movie Videodrome. All right. That's all I got. That's all she wrote. That's our uh, hopefully like uplifting slash this is going to drive you insane episode (laughs) because now everyone's going to be getting onto Reddit trying to figure out what the fuck this song is. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, go for it. You know, if you can share this song with people, but it's. Yeah, I'm going to have to be careful not to slide down this rabbit hole because this (laughs) is like a tailor made for Scotty rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, there's a whole. So when you go into like a subreddit. That is, you know, uh, well, when you go into a subreddit, there's always like flair that can be used so that stuff can start to get like, you know, so that they can sort of like aggregate the posts. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole thing on there that's just theories. Yeah. And it's, I, I like, because it's not just like, what is the song? It's like, hold on. What if Darius didn't actually know the type of tape deck that he was using and it was actually a tape? Mm-hmm. And like, maybe he wasn't listening to a German radio station. Maybe he was listening to something else and made like all, well, and, I, and it just grows and grows and grows and grows. I mean, you were saying like, could there have been this East German band that like got their demo to a West? German radio station it's also possible that he was picking up an East German radio station because it's just right over the border maybe yeah although it's weird like if it was something that was played on communist block radio like why would it be like lyrics in English you know things like that yeah and that's I mean that's the kind of stuff that gets brought up where you know and people are like it's very sweet to like go in there because for the most part everybody is very like hey man totally respect the number of hours that you've put into this Mm -hmm. food for thought if that was the case why would you know they're posing questions like this and it like and and 
again, not to be like, you know, not to be all in my day, but <laughs> in our day, if you didn't know the name, the band's name, if you didn't know the title of the song, you were screwed. Like you just had to oh, wait yeah. until maybe you heard the song again sometime. Yeah. There, there are songs I remember hearing on the radio that then I stumbled on, you know, four years ago or something like, oh my God, like I haven't heard this since I was 10 and I've been wondering yeah. what the hell this was, you know? Yeah. Or like, I remember being a kid, do you remember back when <laughs> us being the olds again, but when uh, we had the UHF and VHF bands on the TVs? Mm-hmm. I used to switch over to the VHF station to watch all these like crazy, like there was one show that turned out to be, I figured out what it was, but it was this Japanese show about this giant golden man fighting like giant monsters. Uh-huh. It was a show called Ultraman, but that took me probably 15 years to figure out what that was yeah other things like that it was just and it was always like you know kind of half snowy because it was like a weak signal yep that was our childhood that was our childhood so i can't even imagine like before that because you know scotty and i are pretty firmly children of the 80s and adolescents of the 90s Mm -hmm. um so we were really you know coming into the sort of like digital analog conjunction but like can you fucking imagine like people from like the 50s the the twenties, like oh, yeah, you know, you're like I heard a I heard a thing. You can literally now go to Google and say like type in what is the song that goes do do do, and Google will be like maybe it's this. Mm-hmm. And like people are trying to Shazam the song and stuff now, but it's just coming up the most mysterious song on the internet. It's on Spotify. It's on like it's yeah, on all this. It's, stuff. it's out there. <laughs> just no yeah. one knows who made it. No one knows who made it. Yeah, I well, remember. Like finding out about Shazam and having my mind mm-hmm. blow. I was like, hold up, there's an app and I can just hit a button and it'll listen to something and it'll just tell me. Yeah. I use Shazam at minimum twice a week. <laughs> it's a godsend. Yeah. yeah, it really is. Yeah. Well, and there's there's something like this is a whole this is a whole other topic, so I won't go on and on about this. But like, I have real mixed feelings on some of this stuff. So I'm gonna get to the whole like the Amazon of everything, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to eBooks. Mm-hmm. There is definitely like, if you're in the whole Bookstagram book nerd world, mm-hmm. a split between people who like they hate eBooks, they hate Amazon. You know, Amazon's putting all the small bookstores out of business, mm-hmm. and also it's just like people like nostalgic about these. You know when we used to go to the used video store or the used bookstore and you would just like go through and you would have that like treasured find and now it's all just available and, and mm-hmm. you know takes the beauty out of some of it i get that on the other hand mm-hmm. there were you know as a horror nerd like i i think there's something a little i don't know privileged about that i want to favor this experience that i had when i was a kid or whatever Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if you were Scotty Milder growing up in Los Alamos in 1991 mm-hmm. and you were hearing about these books that were like these classic but now out of print horror novels that you want to read, like mm-hmm. I couldn't find any of this shit until college or later. You know, there were mm-hmm. books that I couldn't find for 15 years because I didn't have the little used bookstore that I could go pick around in. You know, right. These things were just not available. Right. So to me, like, I just wanted the content. Right. And so all of these things that were mysterious to me back, you know, things I would hear of. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've mentioned it, I think, on the Sonny Bean episode, you know, the, the Jack Ketchum books. Mm-hmm. Where I've been hearing about that off-season book for years. It, it was 10 years or more probably before I could find it. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to stumble on it. 
and so I think, you know, to me, it's like you lose something, but then you gain something with this stuff being available. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think about like the poor nerdy kid in, you know, Oklahoma who just never had access to the things he or she wanted to take in. Have access to. Yeah. Have access well, to. yeah. And the and thing is, do. yeah. And the thing is, is that you can still go and support your local bookstore. Right. You can still, you know, <laughs> they have created apps where you can get eBooks on loan from your library. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, these things exist. So it's yeah. And like, none of this, by the way, is like, let's all, as we've stipulated before, Amazon's a dumpster fire and Jeff Bezos yes. sucks, but like, yes. but the technology itself, I guess I don't want to demonize, you know, it's the same people say the same thing about Netflix, you know, right. Netflix has put all the video stores out of business. Well, the video store that I had access to didn't have anything. Or we have blockbuster video where you go in and you'd have 800 copies of Spider-Man, but you know, God help you if you're trying to find some like obscure French new wave film. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, there's good and bad about all of these things, but in terms of like, it's cool, it's cool to be able to have access to information in Mm -hmm. the way that we do now. And that's not even just like, you know, Amazon and eBooks and stuff. I mean, that's like the fact that, you know, there are Ivy League universities that are like, hey, you can do like audit, you know. Oh, yeah. Courses online. There's, you know, I have, there's podcasts, there's, Right. I have students taking no. my screenwriting class. I have one who's up, no one who's not in New Mexico will understand this, but someone who's living up in Abiquiu, you know, because we're able to do it over Zoom. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what, two hours from Albuquerque? I right. Mean, so like, yeah, I, I get a little grumpy with the like, I don't know, the hipster nostalgia for the old bookstore, old video store kind well, of thing. But at the same time, mm-hmm. like I'm sort of glad that I can just, once we're off of this podcast, I can just go to YouTube and find the mysterious song and listen to it yes but i'm also glad that the mystery is still there i'm glad it hasn't been solved because i do think we do lose something with everything being available all the time yeah yeah and i mean even just the fact that like you know people are having to do work and critical thinking and that kind of stuff is like Mm -hmm. is just is very cool you know and you know again like listen don't be a dick and don't gatekeep the way that people can enjoy something you know what i mean like people don't need to have the physical book they don't need to be able to keep the book in their home and like what's really important is that people read what's really important Mm -hmm. is that people expose themselves to different ideas different forms of music and and i get that there is you know there's stuff in there about like intellectual property and i know that sites like spotify and that kind of thing are troubling for musicians because they don't get the money that they could if we were all buying cds but i also just can't i don't have room to have a billion books and a billion albums i've got on my kindle i've got something like 1500 books right now (laughs) that's my biggest vice probably but like it's two separate like i think the technology streaming technology is or streaming or ebook or whatever Mm -hmm. technology the technology itself is on balance a very good thing yes you know it allows exposure to artists writers who maybe wouldn't have had it otherwise think about even sites like deviant art where mm-hmm. you know where where these artists who maybe don't have the app because of the gatekeepers don't have the access to get their work out there now they can put it up on DeviantArt create fan bases mm-hmm. some of them are getting hired out of DeviantArt to become mm-hmm. like professional comic book artists etc yeah um, I think the technology is great yeah. I think the business 
behind the technology is the Mm -hmm. problem. Yeah. We need to change the business model. Yeah. The technology, like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Yeah. I just ordered Derek Delgadio's book, which listeners might remember us, Scotty and I talking about Derek Delgadio because he is the fucking wizard. I don't even know what to call him. (laughs) uh, That did in and of itself that Scotty and I watched a few weeks ago when we talked about a few episodes ago. He just wrote a book called A Moral Man and the little fucking magic shop that he used to go to and sit at Mm -hmm. and learn from. It's Tannen's magic shop. I believe it's in New York. I think it's in New York. Um, They, you know, I could have ordered the thing off of Amazon, but Tannins was doing a thing where Derek went and signed a whole bunch of copies. So if you ordered from them, you were guaranteed to get a signed copy and access to a QA and a with him. So I was like, hell yes, I'll give my money to this little magic shop, you know? And when everything was going on, all of the social justice work that's been going on, like all you need to do is go onto Google and search Black-owned bookstores, Mm -hmm. Indigenous-owned bookstores, stores, you know, Latinx makeup brands and stuff. Like it's very easy to continue to support the causes that are important to you because we have all this information in our pockets. Right. Well, and the businesses, you know, everyone's worried about Amazon putting, you know, bookstores and record stores out of business. But that's up to us. Right. Well, it's, it's like, (laughs) well, and it's also up to the businesses, you know, like there's a reason why Netflix killed Blockbuster. It's because Blockbuster fucking sucked. Like, oh, they're hate... late fees and shit. Yeah, Ugh. well, and you, you couldn't find anything, and then they would screw you on the late fees. They only kept the popular movies. They had no inventory, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah. I have, like, I have no nostalgia for Blockbuster. But there are. I'm thinking of a video store up in Los Alamos that I used to go to. It's where I fell in love with horror movies. Mm-hmm. They still exist because they are a video store slash coffee shop. You know, the businesses Hey-o. are finding ways to adapt. Right. The key is like, if you want your brick and mortar business to stay open, you don't want Amazon to kill it. And obviously COVID is, you know, complicated all of this, but you've got to find kind of a new angle and turn your business into a hangout. Right. You make it a place that people want to go to and have things that you can't stream a bagel on Spotify. So like salsa bagels, salsa coffee. (laughs) Oh my God. If I could stream bagels on Spotify, I would literally be the shape of a bowling ball because I would just, just be (laughs) streaming it right into my stomach. Yeah. Just directly into my face hole. Yeah. But like there are, but I mean, the point is like, there are ways to have both. Yes. Like if I, you know, had my way like jeff bezos would be somehow compelled to pay x amount of money to underprivileged kids give them all kindles and 10 free downloads a month all on jeff bezos's dime so yeah. the kids who maybe otherwise wouldn't fall in love with reading have access to books yeah don't have to go to a library or a bookstore don't have to spend the money that yeah you had to before yeah but i mean we're not you know, that's yet, yeah and i mean you know as somebody who has committed her life to an art form that people have been saying is dying since it started and this isn't like you know this is not like anti-small business or anything but like do your part and and yeah. order from the little bookstores and right. and you know i have to deal with amazon because sometimes i need to be able to buy you know uh, 200 well, count rubber nipples for a show or something and like <laughs> i just like yeah. I, I have well, to well i mean you know i will say like i buy the vast majority of the books that i read these days for my kindle I just, mm-hmm. I prefer having the Kindle that I can carry around everywhere. I, I have access to almost my entire library. Mm-hmm. So I'm giving a lot of money to Amazon. 
Mm-hmm. I make a point, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and name them. hope they don't get mad at us, but our local big used bookstore in Albuquerque, Page One Books. I make a point to try and go buy something from them, even if it's just a couple magazines or something. I try and go at least a couple times a month just because I, I don't want Page One to go away. So it's yeah. like, find the balance. Like it does, Like you said, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah. Bookworks Um, here is also mm -hmm. doing great because they're bringing in authors. Like there's been a lot of cool authors coming in to do readings of their books at Bookworks. They brought their, I believe they're the ones who brought Stephen King in. Oh yeah. I mean, that was, they didn't have that reading at Bookworks. They had that at the convention center because they're not dumb. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, yeah, no, exactly. Like, you know, there are ways to support these businesses and these, like, I don't want to see books go away, Mm -mm. you know, the way the mixtape essentially doesn't exist anymore. No, the best you can do now is like make somebody a Spotify playlist. Yeah, that's, that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Like it, (laughs) it does lose something. Like after all my like, oh, no, fuck nostalgia. Like I'm nostalgic for the McTapes. You know? I no, yeah, me too. Because I mean, I got, <laughs> I got a lot, a lot, a lot of mixtapes. My very first boyfriend in high school, and we were like the kind that would celebrate like our one month anniversary and our two month anniversary oh, and our three so month cute. anniversary. We were don't even come because we did in fact win <laughs> class couple. You know, yeah, good for you. <laughs> yes, we were real cute. Meanwhile, uh, I was skipping prom to watch Night of the Living Dead for the. 500th time but (laughs) (laughs) and so he would make me a lot of mixtapes later on I went to have I dated another guy who would make me (laughs) for fuck's sake he would make me these like mixed cds of like songs that he like wrote and was playing and like yeah and he would like he we'll get into this we'll get into this (laughs) offline but I was always like yay oh thank you (laughs) Yeah. I wish she'd like said it with a Bob Dylan song instead. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. All anyway. right. We should probably wrap it up here. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks as always for listening. Be sure yep. to rate, review, subscribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find us on all the podcasting apps and please leave us reviews. Please, please, please. Yeah. Hell yeah. Leave us some reviews. Let us know what you think. We're having a lot of people doing fun posts about us. Mm -hmm. Either people who are sort of involved with some of the topics that we've discussed. We had a friend who recently was like out walking in the Mesa and (laughs) was listening to Scotty's story about the FedEx hijacking only to look up and see what was in fact a FedEx plane flying (laughs) over him in the sky. Yeah. That is some synchronicity. That was Um, amazing. That was amazing. And yeah, like leave us reviews, share your thoughts, send us messages. We love hearing from you guys. We get really chuffed. We share each and every message Mm -hmm. with each other that we get. So just know that. Uh, We think you guys are the best. Support local, shop small. Um, (laughs) Stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.